Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Gathered together uh, as one church in one service. We met at 10 o'clock. We sat around tables instead of sitting in rows like we typically do. Uh, We ate together, which was wonderful. And then out of that meal, we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Last weekend, for a whole bunch of reasons I won't go into now, really aligned well with who we want to be as a church and as a local faith community. And we also last weekend began our Pull Up a Chair series, and there isn't time to recap everything. And I hate saying this because I, I... I don't know, I don't even like, I never like saying this, but this is one of those occasions because of the series where it might be worth going back to listen to the first week. Only because it sets up all we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, lots of nuances, lots of disclaimers, lots of qualifiers, things that are important as we proceed forward. So if you weren't here, let me quickly try to recap for the next several weeks Uh, In this pull up a chair series, we are going to be wading into a few of the complicated and challenging cultural issues of our present time. And I'm sure at times as we make our way through these things, some of you will be at times annoyed, agitated, frustrated or offended. I know it's going to happen. I can almost guarantee you it's going to happen today because it's just impossible to talk authentically about these difficult cultural issues without ruffling a few feathers. So I want to remind us of something I I mentioned at length last weekend. It is crucial to remember that we do not come to this particular series primarily as women or men, black or white, Democrats or Republicans, rich or poor, young or old, Americans or non-Americans. Rather, we hope to grapple with these complicated and messy cultural issues, first and foremost, as citizens of the kingdom of God. We hope to discern Jesus' way in these cultural challenges. We want his ethics, in other words, to shape our perspective on these cultural issues. So there will be times in this series, I promise you, when things are said that will challenge or even disrupt our loyalty to our race, to our age group, to our political persuasion, to our gender, or to our economic status. It will happen today, I'm quite sure. Today we are considering the epidemic of violence in our culture. And it's kind of weird, to be talking about this in light of all that has gone on and continues to go on in the world. So if you would stand. Whoa. (laughs) Speaking of rocks. Kind of a nice little metaphor there. But uh, our scripture reading is an important one today. And before we read this, I'm actually going to invite you uh, to bow and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your truth this morning, not to master it, conquer it, force it to say something it doesn't. Or try to make it say something we want it to say. We want to come to your scripture 
to these truths with ears that can hear and hearts that are willing to follow. And we ask you to help us do that in your name. Amen. Matthew 5, uh, Sermon on the Mount. I will start in verse 20, and through all of this, Jesus is speaking. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Verse 38. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. It's weird. It's it's kind of funny kind of scary irony in all this. I'm talking about violence and anger, and I've already promised to annoy and maybe offend you today, and each of you now has a rock. (laughs) Well, that's why I've got one too, because I'm taking someone out with me if this turns into a war. I recognize the holy ground we are on in each of these subjects, and I'm just doing confession time here. We are walking on holy ground today. This is not easy. This is a difficult subject. And so I recognize it's holy ground, which means it's sacred territory. Which means I don't want to go stomping around, tossing my opinions out haphazardly, as if somehow, just because I stand here and say it, it makes it true, because it doesn't. This is holy ground, and I hope to treat it as such with sacredness. I am prayerful and hopeful for the Spirit's gentle work in our family here today, and throughout the weeks of this series. And the key phrases there are the Spirit's work, and the other key phrase is, in our family. Brothers and sisters united together in Jesus. And I also want to tell you, as many of you already know, that I have a personal history with anger, and with violence to some degree. And so this particular subject 
beyond whatever it might do up in my brain and however it might have stirred me to think about this over the last several weeks, this particular subject reaches past my head and goes way down into the depths of my heart and soul because I've had a personal journey with anger for many, many years. So let's begin. The sights and sounds of violence. Eight days ago, once again, our nation experienced yet another mass killing, this time in Odessa and in Midland, Texas. Seven victims were killed and many more were injured. And amazingly, it seems like extreme acts of violence such as this have really, believe it or not, become a common occurrence in our land. Weekly or monthly, it seems, another violent episode occurs. Shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Lance Morrow wrote an article for Time magazine called The Case for Rage and Retaliation. Rather chilling title, I would say. He wrote these words, America needs to relearn a lost discipline, self-confident relentlessness, and to relearn why human nature has equipped us with a weapon abhorred in decent peacetime societies called hatred. Now, it seems to me we have followed Moro's advice and become quite skilled in the weapons of hatred, violence, and anger. And as we think today about the cultural epidemic of violence, we have to think not only of the senseless violence we see in school shootings and other instances of mass murder, certainly those are in the category, but also we must think of the boiling tensions in everyday life situations, everyday hot-headedness, we might call it, skirmishes over parking spaces, run-ins between angry drivers. I read recently of a fist fight between Little League parents over a call made by a teenage umpire. We seem increasingly unwilling or maybe unable to handle life when we don't get exactly what we want, exactly when we want it. Politics has become a theater for violence. Both sides, Democrats and Republicans, insulting each other is par for the course. Violence in the use of words intended to inflict damage on the, quote, opponent. We have a president who likes to stir up anger with tweets and other things. And we have a nation increasingly filled with people who love to just be angry at the president. In 2014, Julia Turner wrote an article called The Outrage Project. She wrote, over the past decade or so, outrage has become the default mode for politicians, pundits, critics, and with the rise of social media, the rest of us. Philosopher Martha Nussbaum describes this epidemic as the social disease of anger. Jesus, in his teaching we read a moment ago from the Sermon on the Mount, invites us to consider violence in deeper ways than just the extreme cases of murder we read or hear about in the news. He invites us to think about the everyday violence in our own hearts, in our own inner world. Coercing someone to do what they don't want to do. Overpowering another person's will. The violence inherent in manipulation to try and trick someone into doing something they may not want to do. 
the violence of hurtful words spoken often in the confines of our own car at an anonymous, faceless somebody who just cut us off on the road. The violence of contempt. This sense of disgust at this group of people or at that person. This dehumanizing force within us that has contemptuous thoughts for some other. The violence of our everyday anger. The spontaneous response or feeling that arises when our will is blocked that often becomes a desire to retaliate or pay back the one who blocked it, whether through an aggressive counterattack on them or a passive withdrawal from them. Jeffrey Kluger, in an article called America's Anger is Out of Control, wrote, Anger is the lazy person's emotion. It is quick, it's binary, it's delicious, and more and more we're gorging on it. In this series, then, we are thinking together about Jesus' alternative society, how we as citizens of his kingdom are to live and relate and respond. And I hope this isn't breaking news to any of us, but these days, violence and anger are equally employed by the Christian community, by individuals who are Christian, by churches that are Christian. In some ways, we don't have time to go into all this, evangelical Christianity was actually born out of contempt and anger. And we, as the local church, as a local church, and as individual Christ followers, have not done a good job of demonstrating an alternative to our culture's violence and anger. Things are so far off the rails, in fact, Anger and hostility have even become to some people positive signs that we actually care about some issue. It's as though anger and hostility are now desirable attributes and even necessary attributes in order for change to happen. This rather dangerous idea of righteous anger has become a blanket justification for Christian anger. Dave Fitch says, our witness as a people to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has become tainted with the ugliness of enemy-making. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2-4. through 4, This is on the screens. A very significant, very important passage from the Apostle Paul that speaks right to these issues we're talking about. He says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Violence, I would suggest, in all of its forms, anger, hostility, enemy-making, berating, belittling, dehumanizing the other, these are the weapons of the current culture but they are not to be the way of kingdom citizens. Secondly, let's talk about the urgent need to transform violence and anger. Matthew chapter 5 begins, we didn't start at the beginning, but it begins with what are called the Beatitudes. You may have heard of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who, at least in human terms, brought absolutely nothing to the table. They were outside the circles of power. They were outside, or so it was thought, the circles of blessing. They were destitute, 
and they were hopeless. But Jesus comes along and he says the goodness of God's kingdom is now available to them through him. So they are indeed richly blessed by God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. You actually matter to God and his blessing is showered upon you. And he, Jesus, has come to show them his love and his way of life. Jesus says when they live in the reality of this blessing, they salt or flavor the world and they bring light into the darkness of this world. They manifest, in other words, an alternative that is very, very good. Jesus then says, this is before anything we read in Matthew 5. He says, he is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. Everything in the Older Testament points to him and finds its fullest expression and manifestation in him. The culmination of the Old Testament law is Jesus. He is what the writers of the Old Testament were pointing to. And life in him is what they were ultimately trying to describe, however imperfectly, and what they were trying to invite people to experience. So, Jesus begins his great sermon, the part we didn't read, by telling the crowd they, in fact, are the recipients of God's goodness. And life in him and life under his gentle rule is the very best. And after establishing the foundation of who these folks are in God and under God, Jesus then ventures into the particulars of this kingdom life. So we just summarized Matthew chapter 5 through verse 19. And it is not by accident or coincidence that when Jesus then plunges into the specific ethics of the kingdom of God and of relationships, he begins with violence and with anger. It's the very first topic he undertakes. We read in Matthew 5, verse 20, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. He's citing the Ten Commandments there, one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. If there is contempt for other people, that's these... Words, he says, there'll be judgment on that person. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It is a vision of a person and a vision of a community of people living in God's kingdom without violence, without anger, and without contempt. A vision of a person and a people who realize the destruction these things cause. So when they arise within them, they urgently deal with them. Here's what I see. Anger and violence are primary sins and problems when we wander away from the blessedness of God's kingdom. Put this differently. Something in human beings, something in us, gravitates toward violence and anger when we forget or outright reject God's identity-giving love. Violence and hostility and anger emerge in the vacuum of a soul that does not know to whom it belongs. And violence and anger and hostility, as we know, then give birth to a host of other sins and evils, 
and problems. Dallas Willard puts it this way. In his discourse on the hill, Jesus treats hostility at greater length than any of the other matters he takes up. This is certainly because it is most fundamental. If you pull contempt and unrestrained anger out of human life, you have thereby rid it of by far the greater part of wrong acts that actually get carried out. To cut the root of anger is to wither the tree of human evil. Imagine for a moment what our lives and relationships would be like if we had no violence, no hostility, no anger within us. What would a conflict between spouses be like? Imagine what driving would be like if nobody had violence or hostility or anger within them. Imagine what the political theater would be like if violence and anger was stripped out of those in political office or running for political office. See, when human beings lose their sense of blessedness under God, when we forget or abandon his identity-giving love, when we forget the first part of Jesus' great sermon, we become susceptible to violence and anger because we are no longer living in the security of who we are in God's love. It goes like this. When someone slights us or insults us or ignores us or otherwise harms us, we lack the undergirding of God's identity-giving love to hold us and see us through. So we react and we respond in anger to retaliate and pay back the one who hurt us. Martha Nussbaum calls these status injuries. And we've all received them. Someone says or does something or doesn't say or do something, we take it as a slight or an insult or a downranking, and our anger flares to restore our status and pay back the one who injured us. So the rise of violence in our culture and the rise of violence in the Christian community is an arrow pointing to a much deeper problem. When we forget who we are, when we abandon God's identity-giving love, or perhaps the most common issue, when faith gets reduced to a small compartment of our lives, it lacks any meaningful influence on us. And then we're left to fend for ourselves. And we humans, we've done this throughout our history, we fend for ourselves through various forms of violence and anger. Let's talk for a moment about the constitution of kingdom citizens. Walter Brueggemann, brilliant theologian, wrote these words. Our sociology is predictably derived from, legitimated by, and reflective of our theology. Here's what I think he means. The ways we relate to and interact with other people reveals what we actually believe about God. If we believe violence is okay, or sometimes necessary, or anger is necessary, or good, or sometimes good, if we believe hostility, insulting, berating, belittling, is benign, or productive, 
then we likely believe somewhere in us God endorses these things. God endorses anger and violence and hostility. Or we don't believe he cares about such human life minutia. It just doesn't matter to him. Let me give an example. Jerry Falwell Jr. is an evangelical Christian leader and the president of Liberty University in Virginia. And in September of 2018, he tweeted out the following direct quote. Conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters like at real Donald Trump at every level of government because the liberal fascist Dems are playing for keeps and many Republican leaders are a bunch of wimps. 60,000 people follow this guy on Twitter. His sociology, I would suggest, is rooted in his theology. At times, I would put it this way, that he must think this. At times, God has a puffed up chest. And at times, he ain't going to take anything from anybody. So neither should we. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of kingdom citizens. Being Christian means Jesus' way is to be our way. And a big piece of his way is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because it takes the demands of the law seriously and applies them more extensively than simply modifying outward actions and behaviors. Do this and don't do that kind of stuff. The law is now applied to the inner life of the individual and to the inner life of the church, the soul of the church, the inner life of a congregation. The Sermon on the Mount establishes a vision of who we are to be as a faith community. Salt in a bland world. Light shining in a dark world. An alternative society. And our scripture reading and Jesus' teaching in these words I read is against violence. And against anger. And against hostility. Jesus' way is toward transforming anger. It is toward reconciliation of enemies. It is not revengeful. It is not pay back the one who's harmed us. It is not eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Jesus' teaching, I said, I read this out of Matthew 5, says, quote, do not resist an evil person. Be vulnerable in front of someone who wants to harm you. What? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And here's the key phrase, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Wow. Not sure even what to say about it. Ephesians 4, verse 31, Paul says... Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave you. So when we consider the numerous ways we embody 
violence and anger and hostility and retaliation in our hearts, through our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions, without even thinking about it, without ever questioning it, without wondering now and then if these are compatible with the way of the kingdom. It gets me thinking, does God ever say anything abrasive to us? Anything that contradicts our ingrained beliefs and priorities? Does God ever disturb our peace or impinge our comfort? long time ago, we had a guy named Brian Robertson, another guy named David Holcomb, on our staff here at the church. And for some reason, long time ago, the three of us entered into a contract where we agreed to wear shorts only for an entire year. It was a typed-up contract. We all signed it. We had like a ceremony where we all signed it. We were each granted two exceptions throughout the year to be taken at our convenience. Any other exceptions had to be submitted to the other guys for discussion. And if the three of us could not reach an agreement, we had established before this ever started a three-person committee that was standing by ready to review situations and make a ruling. I went skiing on a retreat. And I pleaded with the guys for an exception, which they joyfully denied. So I skied in shorts. I've skied twice in my entire life. That was the second time. I fell a lot. Julie laughed a lot. This is a true story. At one point, an Australian guy went flying by me on skis And he looked at me, and when he got past me, he jumped up in the air and flipped around. Now he's going backwards down the hill. And he said to me as he's going backwards, You got icicles hanging off of the hair on your legs. It's because I'd fallen so many times. For a year, we decided to forfeit our right to wear whatever we wanted and live by a different constitution. See, we as the church, citizens of God's kingdom forever, have decided to forfeit our rights and live by a different constitution called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me put it this way. As citizens of the kingdom at Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California in 2019, We have one right, and that's this. We have the right to take up our cross daily and die to self. Our responsibility as kingdom citizens individually and as a faith community, our calling, if you prefer, is to manifest the character of Jesus in this world. And according to our constitution, the Sermon on the Mount, we witness to the gospel by embodying reconciliation instead of anger and contempt Forgiveness instead of retaliation, loving our enemies and praying for them and for those who harm us instead of hating them. Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of kingdom citizens. And this is what is to guide and govern our lives as kingdom citizens. And the constitution of the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the scriptures is to trump all other constitutions and voices and guides In our lives, and I know this is messy and challenging, but kingdom citizens have to grapple 
with the nonviolence of Jesus Christ. The U.S. Constitution that gives us the right to bear arms is subordinate to the Kingdom Constitution that invites us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, set aside anger, and work toward reconciliation. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. I don't know how to do that in a violent world. I don't know how to respond this way if attacked by someone. I don't. But as a kingdom citizen and as kingdom citizens, we have to think and converse and interact on these things together. Maybe lovingly disagree. We have to have ears that can hear what Jesus is saying and wrestle with it. The anger and the violence perpetuated on social media has to be grappled with by kingdom citizens. It's not okay to berate and belittle those who see things differently. It's violent. We have to think about these things as kingdom citizens and imagine together an alternative story and future. Which brings me to the last thing I want to talk about, and that's righteous gentleness. I have a lot of opinions about righteous anger. I don't have time to go into them all. I want to suggest righteous gentleness be our way. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says of himself, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And Proverbs 15.1 could not have been written more directly to today's world. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Gentleness is the way of the kingdom in a violent world. Gentleness is the way kingdom citizens embody an alternative in these angry times in which we live. Gentleness is hard to define, but it's easy to understand. We know it when we see it, and when we see it, we are drawn to it. In some ways, we are magnetized by the incarnation of gentleness. Baseball is a pretty good metaphor as to where we are in society right now. This particular scene in baseball, batter gets up to the plate, gets hit by a pitch. Using our language, a status injury, a slight, a downgrading, gets hit by a pitch. And there's often, right when this happens, immediate tension, and you can see the potential retaliation rising in the batter. They're going to charge the mound, or they scream at the mound, or they frown at the pitcher. You'll often see the catcher slide out from the plate and get between the batter and the pitcher in order to ward off a possible altercation. It goes on in society all the time. Is there an alternative way? Is there an alternative way to get hit by a pitch and respond differently? Own our part in getting hit by the pitch having humility once we're hit and responding with gentleness. Something about gentleness that's magnetic. You know it when you see it. So watch this clip.
that amazing? You know what he was saying there? He's telling the umpire, no, I actually leaned over the plate too far, and that's why the ball hit me. And I don't know this for sure, but I think his coach is going, take first base, take first base. He got hit, and he goes, no, no, it's my responsibility. I shouldn't have done that. You can bet that pitcher's thinking, I wish you'd have taken first base. And you hit a home run. See, to me, that's gentleness right there. And gentleness is what Christ followers need to embody in this violent and angry and hostile world. Incarnating gentleness, refusing to play the game of everyday anger and violence. I just say enough of the righteous anger justification. The mark of the Christian community should be righteous gentleness, patterned after our founder, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I, Mike, trust Jesus to be able to handle anger and do it righteously because of his beautiful inner world, but I don't trust me, Mike, to do it. So I'll stick with pursuing gentleness. Jesus is our example in the midst of violence and in the face of those who would do us harm. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23, a powerful and profound set of verses. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, status injury, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I just can't blow past this and brush it aside. In the face, literally, of his accusers, And his murderers, Jesus set the example. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Why? Because he knew he was blessed by God and safe in his good care, even in the midst of his suffering. I'd urge you to read John chapter 8. Begins with a crowd of religious people clutching stones in their hands, ready to throw them at a woman who was caught in adultery. To administer justice, they were sure the law required. Violence in the name of God with the backing of God. But Jesus comes along and he challenges their certainty. He disrupts their system and he models the alternative way of grace and forgiveness And the crowd lays down their stones and goes home. And then at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus has just severely challenged their thinking about God and their addiction to their religious system. He has said several abrasive things that challenged and confronted their governing constitution. And the crowd is there again with stones in hand, ready to throw them at Jesus and eliminate him. Strange scene. At the beginning of John 8, a crowd of religious people are ready to throw stones at a sinful woman. At the end of John 8, a crowd of religious people are ready to throw stones at a holy and good Savior. And in both cases, the crowd of religious people are ready to throw their stones in the name of God with his backing, so they thought. Here's the point. Religious people like to throw stones in God's name. And when they do, They fail to be the alternative society Jesus calls them to be. So I want to ask you to close your eyes if you would.
You've got that rock in your hand for a reason. It's a unique rock. You can actually write on this rock with what are called paint pens. And there are stations around the room. I'm going to invite you to go there in a moment. There's a couple in the back, and there are, there's one up front to the right in the corner and up front to the left in the corner. I want us to think about ways we have perpetuated violence, added to it, sustained it. Think of our everyday anger, the hostilities we have given a home within us, ways we've added to the tension in our culture. I like to think of people with whom we are angry or have been violent towards. Groups of people we label, we belittle, we berate, we dehumanize. Actual names of people that trigger our rage and ignite our anger. We have a few minutes here because these kinds of scriptures are not to be read and thought about and left. They are the kinds of things that we would want the Spirit of God to bring beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in us. Where have you perpetuated violence? Embodied anger? Nurtured hostility? What group is in your sights? What people are your targets? I just want you to sit in that. With confidence, the Spirit of God is here and might have something to reveal in you on these things. Here's what I'd like you to do. Sit for as long as you want. Hold that rock in your hand. Who do you hold it with the intent of throwing it? As you think about this, just want to invite you if you want to, at some point in the next minute or two, if you get clarity from Jesus, to go to one of these stations, take that pen, write whatever you want to write on it, the name of a person, a group of people, something that you've done to perpetuate violence or anger or hostility, write it on this rock, And then up front, on either side of the stage, there are crosses. We have a Savior we follow who stood in the face of an empire of evil. And he did not retaliate. He could have undone the Roman Empire with a single word. He didn't do it. He could have twisted Pontius Pilate's head around in so many ways, confounding him with wisdom beyond all wisdom. Pilate would have done nothing but let Jesus go, but Jesus didn't do it. He could have summoned an army. He says this to Pilate. If I were a king like you, I could get an army that would wipe you out, but I'm not that kind of king. I don't fight that way. 
I'd encourage you just to be present to the Spirit. And if He so leads, go spend some time with your rock and a pen. And then take it to the cross, this symbol of violence upon which our beautiful Savior died. Spirit of God, we invite you in these minutes to be our teacher, to be our counselor, to lead us into truth and show us your wisdom. And we pray in Christ's name.